0: welcome interiors lovers to the daniel house book club i'm peter Spalding, the cco or chief creative officer of daniel house club and i'll be your host together we're journeying through the eight books every interiors lover should have read according to architectural digest and we're learning so much Thus far, we've covered the decoration of houses, the house in good taste, the interaction of color, 1,000 chairs, and now we're working our way through Mark Hampton on decorating, and this will be our last week taking a look at this book. Before we get into today's section on materials and outdoors, um, let me give you a little bit of a plug for the Daniel House Club. If you're an interior designer and you've spent any time specifying furniture for your clients, you know two things. It can be very profitable, and it can also be a hellacious nightmare you'd do anything to avoid. But the profits make it difficult to avoid, so you buckle up and do the hard work of forming the right vendor relationships, attempting to hit minimum orders to procure helpful pricing with enough manufacturers to put a whole house together then you place your orders and you spend the rest of your waking sometimes unbillable hours tracking hundreds of packages as they circulate the globe you wonder when will death come and you hope it's soon now though you just visit danielhouse.club become a member and enjoy really great pricing across more than 100 vendors you never have to worry about hitting minimums to keep your pricing and what's more you don't have to follow up with 100 reps to figure out where all your pieces are we track everything for you. We offer a variety of shipping options nationwide, including White Glove, and the price is always just 10% of your order. I do need to say that because everything is getting more expensive, sadly, we are only maintaining that 10% until June 18th of this year and then it will be moving up to 15%. We've kept it as long as we can at 10% but we're actually losing money on every order that we ship right now. So unfortunately we are going up to 15%. So get your orders in before June 18th and enjoy that 10% while it lasts. Um, Just the other day one of our members ordered 93 items across 22 different vendors. Instead of contacting each company individually, she just pressed complete order and we began the heavy lifting from there. Best of all, because she's a pro plus member, she purchased everything at 50% off. So she has plenty of room to make money on work that used to take her weeks and still extend a discount from retail to her clients. It doesn't get much better than that. So visit danielhouse.club and become a member today. Okay, today we're looking at the final two sections of the late decorator Mark Hampton's book, Mark Hampton on Decorating. Finally, the sun is peeking out from behind the clouds here in Portland, or it was when I wrote this, and now they're back. Um, And we have managed a couple of days above 70. So I'm thrilled that one of the remaining sections is titled Outdoors. I do think the order is a little bit weird here, since the final section, materials really focuses exclusively on inside things. So I'd love to hear from someone what the reason, if any, for this organization of sections was, but alas, um, let's focus our minds on the great outdoors. Hampton starts um, at this distinctly American place, which is the front porch. It's a feature, he says, that has been applied in nearly all corners of the country to virtually all sorts of domestic architecture we've borrowed from Europe. Front porches are unique and ubiquitous in America or I should say unique to and ubiquitous in America, because even in northern states, we have hot, humid summers, and we need a place to escape that stagnant air of our interiors and sit where the air flows freely and where we can find shade from the sun. I'm not really quoting Hampton verbatim here, but that's the gist. Um, He does call them, um, rather perfectly, a box seat for viewing nature. When I read that, I immediately thought of lazy Saturday mornings when I played at my dad's feet on the porch floor as he read the paper. Our porch was on the rear of the house, but the idea was the same. And I'll say, I think that um, the porches Hampton is writing about are a little bit roomier and more removed from the curb than some of the little bungalow porches you encounter all over the place. I've always sort of felt that having a porch on the front of a fairly formal house or a tightly quartered urban house is sort of weird and that America kind of got the story of passage through the house a little backward. I had a professor of modern architecture who praised the invention of air conditioning for finally freeing us all from the stupidity and nostalgia of front porches. Front porch sitting has, for lack of a gentler term, a sort of hayseed quality that we've seen portrayed in movies for a long time. It's not really very nice, and it is actually pretty pleasant to sit on a front porch from time to time. Um, But back porch sitting tends to be associated with um, real leisure. Anyway, wherever the porch is, Hampton has some suggestions for its appointment. The one that stuck out to me was, and we've been told this about um, interiors as well, that painting disparate furniture a single unifying color Um, will go pretty far. Outside though we are more limited on colors that are actually maybe appropriate. Hampton likes that forest green color so common for shutters and I think that was maybe more common in the late 80s than it is now but you all probably still know the green. Um, He likes a full range of whites, gray, natural tones, or black. And he says all these fall in sort of the classical canon of suitable backdrops for striped awnings, chintz cushions, and old patterned rugs that are inevitably found in these indoor-outdoor spaces. In relation to the indoor-outdoor space at the wonderful old classical house um, called Old Westbury on Long Island, um, and actually more generally too, um, he says that one of the chicest things we can possibly do in decorating is what's unexpected. Sometimes I think people take this notion as a suggestion to just be weird, which usually goes very badly. But here he's arguing that if a space is really grand and formal, people tend to anticipate its furniture will be grand too, and arranged in a fairly prescribed manner. So I was excited to see him include this loggia at Old Westbury, because I've actually been there, and I've taken a picture of the ceiling and the ionic columns that he's mentioned and illustrated in this chapter, as well as the very overstuffed... Um, randomly arranged, chintz-covered furnishings that he's talking about. I took pictures of everything because I thought someday I would love to have this for myself. Um, And Westbury is such a wonderful, very, very classical um, Georgian house. Uh, It it almost could feel kind of pompous, but as um, Hampton says... It is totally comfortable and unexpectedly informal when you go inside. You don't feel like you can't kick your feet up on all the furniture, and in fact, the rooms themselves seem to be begging you to stay and relax. Another great house and porch Hampton mentions is um, Vizcaia, uh which is a place that not enough people really know about. It's a fantastic Italian Renaissance palazzo-style house built in the early 1900s for James During, who was the heir to the international harvester fortune. It has a full-fledged interior courtyard around which all the main rooms are oriented and from which you pass through three gigantic arched openings supported by piers of Tuscan columns to get into the huge loggia, um, which has a vaulted ceiling, elaborate marble mosaic floors, and clear views of the Atlantic Ocean beyond. It's very formal. Um, and here again, we're surprised to find casual, comfy wiki, wicker chairs dotted about. And actually, I've been here too, and I'll say that must have been in Hamptons time because that is all gone. Um, now it's just one vast open space. It's actually a pretty well-visited, I think maybe locally, Um place uh so it has these huge kind of commercial looking glass doors that now enclose the space from the outdoors um so sadly all this sort of wonderful charm is gone but it is pretty easy to imagine how great it would be if all those wicker chairs were back um Anyway, the key to both of these places is this element of surprise that sort of tickles us all, and we become smitten with it. Um, Because it's sort of like meeting someone we expected to be standoffish, and then they do something sort of weird that we never imagined uh, such a person would do, and suddenly we really want to know more. Um... So as we exit the porch and step out into the great big world beyond, I should say I have been asked by many clients to design their gardens uh, because they are so integrated with the interior world that I think it is sort of a natural next step. Um, And I think designers should advise in the realm of the garden, Um, but unless they are plant experts, they should consult with someone who really knows plants well, because it's very possible to become a serial murderer of plants and cost your clients a ton of money um, if you don't really know what you're doing. And if you think people are mad when their furniture comes damaged, they will be much more disappointed when their very expensive investment is dead in a year. Um, Still, um, really good gardens, even sort of wild ones, are very architectural, and that's where we come in. I think Hampton illustrates this best when he talks about a house and garden that I've never gotten to visit, but which now, after reading this chapter, I'm already planning a trip in my head, Um, And that's uh, Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Swindon, England. And I don't know that I'm necessarily pronouncing that right, but it sounds good to me. Um, Not having actually visited, it's difficult for me to describe in detail, except that it's conceived as a series of exterior rooms, and the way these rooms are distinguished from one another and connected to one another is not unlike the interior of a good house. Um, my perception is that it's a very classic English garden, um, and the very best piece of Sizzinghurst sounds to be this white garden, where all the plants grown are white and silvery in hue, and where the center is defined by a massive arbor of white rambler roses, um, And just as disparate furnishings were unified by a single color on the porch or in the interior of a home, so too are the plantings in this garden. The arbor provides an architectural focal point like a fireplace might in a great living room. And then as we proceed out of the white garden, Hampton describes a sense of constraint and drama produced by a pathway bordered on each side by 10-foot-tall yew hedges. Just like well-articulated interior space feels larger than ill-defined space of the same size, such a pathway could add a sense of gravity to even a fairly small yard. Though Sissinghurst is really grand, Hampton rightly explains its lessons are of scale and enclosure. Um, And this could be applied and really should be applied anywhere, like good houses. He does point out that personal involvement and the passing of time is what makes gardens become really very special. Okay, so now we return to the indoors um, for Hampton's final section titled Materials. And it's funny because I think so many interior designers are very involved in specifying hard surfaces for kitchens and baths, um, that I imagine such a chapter written today would have a strong focus on hard surfaces and fixtures, but here we get a glimpse at a vast storehouse of knowledge which is lesser known today. This is all about the appropriate uses of fabrics, and I'm not talking about talking about performance fabrics, I'm talking about styles of fabrics, Um, about papers, tassels, fringe, and slipcovers. These are things I think we tend sometimes to turn our nose up at a little bit, but Hampton's position is that these are as important to dialing in the project um, as the bigger architecture is. Even if you want a crisp, clean look, learning about appropriate specifications in this arena of softer goods is critical. We start with chintz, and I think maybe if I've been reading this book with you all, I don't know, even maybe three years ago, I would have skipped over this segment as irrelevant. But chintz is once again becoming part of the main, so we should dive in. The word chintz apparently is derived from some Hindu word meaning Indian dyed fabrics um, or Indian dyed cottons. And while it may have once been a poor substitute for a better material, it has long been a staple staple that is applicable to even very fine rooms. It has is largely associated with the English country look at which we've talked about a lot um, and Hampton says achieving this sort of coveted, undecorated scheme is really a game of addition and subtraction. If a room is really grand, you want to pull it down. And a little bit of chintz might help it feel very casual, or at least kind of casual and comfy. If a room suffers from having no special architecture, then you want to punch it up a little bit by bringing in a little bit fancier furniture. So maybe you have a gilded mirror or a gilded pair of side tables, and suddenly things feel a little bit too much, but then you introduce some chintz, like seasoning a perfect dish, and suddenly everything is in harmony, and you've got a very comfortable room. Uh, for for anyone listening who, who doesn't know, chintz is just a printed cotton. Um, usually it's a floral design, and it's generally the stuff most associated with old lady decorating. But it comes in thousands of bold and brilliantly colored um, and scaled varieties, and applied in the right way it can actually feel very youthful, vibrant, and even maybe masculine if the background is right. So it's not a material that we really should relegate as we have for various points of decorating history. Um, Next, Hampton moves to damasks and brocades. Having never specified either myself, I had to do some research to learn what the difference actually is. I'm sure all of you knew immediately. Um, I knew they were different, I just didn't quite know how. Uh, Somewhere in this section we've covered today, uh, Hampton wrote that As we moved out of the heavy brocades and cut velvets of the Victorian era, um, suddenly very subtle damasks and plain velvets became a lot more acceptable than what we sometimes look at as sort of vulgar, almost nouveau riche kind of materials that really scream at you. And this sort of resonated with me because I grew up in a 1917 colonial revival house, which was pretty strict and straightforward. And I remember having this very soft, damask-patterned paper in the stair hall. um, And it was like a sage and butter color. So the pattern really didn't glare at you at all. It was just a nice, quiet background. Um, Where a house of a slightly earlier era, um, maybe a late Victorian house, might have had something that really was very assertive. So brocade is definitely, um, it can be a little bit more, Pronounced, but um, no matter the application, it actually is of a, a finer quality material. Um, so it's sort of rough to the touch, where damask is satiny smooth, and it has a metallic gold and or silver thread woven through it. So um, so it's one sided, where damask usually always because of the making process, um, because of the weave has a pattern that is visible on both sides and is inverted from one side to the other. Um, so they're, they're both great materials to use, but Hampton warns that this is where you need to really know what you're doing because, um, you know, as you're leveling up, you, you, it becomes apparent if you, maybe don't have the knowledge. So a little further on, he shares this anecdote about selecting a trim for a Louis XVI chair while he was working for Macmillan, and a senior member of the staff there sort of sneering because he'd pointed to something that was Louis XV era. Um, So the two were not compatible, and a discerning eye would pick that up right away. So um, once you get to a certain sort of Stratosphere, I think what he's saying is you really need to know the rules and then once you know If you are deliberately breaking them, that's totally fine, but what you don't want is Just the sort of obvious. I didn't know what I was doing kind of thing to happen So really fancy fabrics and trims should be selected in relation to the era of the piece um, they'll be applied to so in the case that he's talking about a louis the 15th chair or louis the 16th chair really wants um, Materials that were available simultaneous to its production um, Really fancy fabrics and trims should be considered in this way According to him you don't want them to call attention to themselves Unless perhaps that's your deliberate intention um, So hopefully I've recapped that well. I I recommend going and reading that section um, because I think there's some really helpful knowledge even if you're not kind of working in this idiom. So moving on to wallpaper, Hampton, like so many before us, says it actually can make a room feel larger Um, than what sort of the common view is that it may feel encroaching. And this enlarging effect is particularly notable in small rooms where providing some sort of scale measure suddenly helps the eye take in all corners and heights of a room. Uh, It can enhance the architectural mood of a room, and we just are able to read the whole space better. Uh, Also contrary to popular belief, patterned paper can actually be a great unifying backdrop for diverse artwork. So on white walls, maybe things sort of punctuate a little bit more, but um, a patterned wall can sort of absorb and handle a bit more. Um, Wallpaper has been re-popular for a long time now, so I don't really need to convince many people here, uh, except that he he does note that, um, and I don't think we consider this enough, that if you arrive at a project and the walls are not in great condition, this can actually be a great way to save some money and to um, to just make things look fresh and hold the walls together for a bit longer because wallpaper does have really pretty long lifespan. Uh, My two cents that I would add, um, just because it's something that we've encountered a lot recently, I think less in the last 10 or so years, but I don't personally think wallpaper is usually successful as an accent wall. I think a lot of clients sometimes think, oh, maybe I could handle it in this one little section. I I think this is a bad idea. I think, um, as Hampton has pointed out, it, it is kind of about adding architecture to a room, and architecture really is the whole envelope of a space. So we sort of pull architecture back into 2D when we decide to do just one wall. I do think it works very well when you're defining sort of a separated space, like a niche or a back of a bookcase, but just one wall, I don't know, for me, it's not successful. So, finally, we are getting to the very end of this book, and we arrive at tassels, fringe, and slip covers. And these, I think, are the most foreign- things to a contemporary designer's mind. Um, And probably this isn't for a lack of personal interest, but for a lack of interest from our clients and lack of access to knowledge. Tassels and fringe really are not something that we're exploring in school. and you got to go study historical pieces to really get a sense for how they go together and work well. Um, I do recommend that you read this chapter for yourself because I don't really think I can do it justice um, myself. But what I did find most intriguing was how Hampton points out that well-made trims, um, those made from real rather than synthetic materials, are actually very durable. He talks about reupholstering a worn-out velvet sofa where all the trims were able to be removed and reused. This is something, I think, to keep in mind when working with a client who may be skeptical that these elements are too delicate or too expensive for their project. Again, the trim selected need to match the spirit of the piece you're working with, um, because otherwise you run into the same sort of era problem where you just, it's going to look off, it's sort of going to look like you didn't know what you were doing, or you maybe set out just to be weird. Um, but this idea of matching spirit, I think, carries us into the very last concept discussed in the book, which are sort of slip covers and straw rugs, uh, and a general redressing of the house for summer. And this is something I've literally never thought of with a client. And I want to start immediately, because Uh, Some of the lazy summertime images the whole idea conjures seem too great to forego. Hampton says, not only uh, do we want to be cool in the summer, but we also want the visual impression that our surroundings are are cool. So covering all the upholstery in a room in something like a white cotton or linen or um, ticking sort of cools everything down and implies a casual air. We can even roll up our rugs and replace them with straw or sisal or jute until the cold weather returns. And he points out that we all dress ourselves in the spirit of the season and even go really sometimes overboard with Christmas decorations, and these only stay up for a month. So dressing our home for summer um, shouldn't really be any different. And I don't think Either that slip covering a whole house has to look like uh, your grandma's house. Um, I think you could design really sleek slip covers if that's something that interests you. So I do think this is a concept to explore. I think um, he makes a good point too that this can help your furniture or your client's furniture last a bit a bit longer. Um, give the materials that the pieces are made out of a little bit of a rest protect them for a season, and then um, put the slipcovers away in the fall and get back to um, that sort of warmer, all-encapsulating feel that you've worked so hard to create. So I think this is really a cool concept to explore in in whatever idiom that you like to work. so this concludes our look at Mark Hampton on decorating, although I have been chatting a little bit with his daughter, Alexa Hampton, who, um, if we ever can get our schedules to line, may come join us for a special conversation, uh, some of her insights from this great book. So um, stay tuned for that as a special episode, and otherwise, we'll be back next week to begin our look at the next book, The World of Ornament. So I will talk to you then. Have a great week. I'm going to